0: Good morning. Happy Sabbath. If you would join me in a moment of prayer. Our healing God, we thank you so much for the privilege of knowing you, of reading your word together. And as we do so, may your Holy Spirit minister to each one of us. May we be drawn closer to you and may we be inspired to serve one another, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when Pastor Mike asked me if I would preach on a week when he was gone, he was kind enough to give me plenty of advance notice. And I greatly appreciate that. I'm obviously not ready to perform without a net yet, so I've got my computer here in case I forget where I'm going or where I am. But. Uh, He was preaching at that time on people with disabilities. And a story that I have loved for a long, long time is about a disabled person. And I thought, I would like to preach about Naaman. But if Pastor Mike is going to use Naaman as one of his disabled people, I don't want to work up a sermon only to discover that he's already planning on preaching it. So I asked him, was he planning to talk about Naaman? And he said, no, but why don't you? It sounds like a good idea. And if you recall, last week, we moved from disabilities to healing. And so basically what Pastor Mike has done is lobbed a nice slow one, belt high, directly over the center of the plate. So if I can't get it out of the infield, it's not on him. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about Naaman this morning, and Naaman is someone who Jesus knew about. Our scripture from Luke 4.27, and I'll be using the New American Standard Bible, 1995 update for my scripture texts this, this morning. Jesus, when he returned to Nazareth as a part of his public ministry, was when he just got back to his hometown, and he used this story in what he was saying to the people. He reminded them that there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. The story of Naaman, at least the portion of it that we're going to talk about today, is found in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1-19. to And just so we all know what the story is, we're going to read through it quickly together. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master, highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with that prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, and six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now, and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Pharpar the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then, when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. When he returned to the man of God with all his company, he came and stood before him. He said, behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him. Now, there are a number of individuals that we see in this story? Obviously, there's Naaman. We call it the story of Naaman, but I'm not sure it really should be, and we'll get to that soon. There's also a little girl. We don't know her name. We don't know where she's from. She's a little girl. There's Naaman's wife, who basically just interacts with this little girl and with Naaman. That's about all we know about her, but she's mentioned in the story. There's the king of Aram. Now, if you're reading from the King James Version or some other versions, Aram is Syria. So this is the king of Syria or Aram. There's the king of Israel. There's Elisha, the prophet, a messenger that Elisha sends, and Naaman's servants. Let's start with Naaman. Verse 1 tells us that Naaman was captain of the army of the king of Aram. Now, for those of you with any military experience, that's not an 0 03 captain like in the army. Ken, that's not even an 06 captain like in the navy. If you look that word up in a concordance, you will find that it's exactly the same word used in the book of Joshua when Joshua meets the captain of the Lord's host. And who was that? It was Christ coming to give Joshua encouragement for the conquest of Canaan. So if Naaman is captain of the army of the king of Aram, he's a flag officer. He's got stars on his shoulders, bunches of them. He is the commanding general of Aram's army. And he is highly respected by the king And we're told in this verse that it's because the Lord, by Naaman, had given victory to Aram. Now, if you'll permit me, I'm going to indulge in a little bit of sanctified speculation here. (laughs) And we don't have time to go through it, but I encourage you sometime to read carefully 1 Kings chapter 22. It's the story of the final battle of King Ahab's reign. It's the battle for Ramoth Gilead. King Ahab persuades King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, to join him, so the armies of Israel and Judah are going to try to retake the city of Ramoth Gilead, which is under the control of the Aramaeans or Syrians. Interesting the way King Ahab orchestrates this battle. He tells Jehoshaphat, I'm going to disguise myself and go into the battle. You go wear your royal robes. Now, whether Jehoshaphat or Ahab knew what was going on, I don't know, but the king of Aram had told all 32 of the captains of his chariots, do not fight with anyone except the king of Israel. Now, at this point, we don't know for sure where in his military career Naaman was, but there's a very good chance that he was at least one of those charioteer captains among those 32. And these charioteers see Jehoshaphat in the battle, and of course, they immediately attack, rush to the attack. Jehoshaphat cries out, and they realize that he's he's not the king of Israel, and so Jehoshaphat's life is saved. But in verse 24 of 1 Kings 22, we read, Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. King Ahab had finally exhausted all efforts that God could make to redeem him. He went into this battle knowing it had been prophesied that he would die, and indeed he did. They propped him up in the chariot so it would look like he was still capable of leading the army, but about sunset, he died. The battle ended. Israel went back. The army was disbanded, and consequently, Aram claimed the victory. Now again, I don't know who that certain man was, but it's interesting to speculate, because it's possible that Naaman was the very individual who made that random bow shot that brought down the king of Israel. I don't know, but it's an interesting thought. But we do know that Naaman was a valiant warrior. Mighty man in valor is the way the King James uses the term. And this is a term that would be used of David, of Joab. He was truly a warrior. Purple heart, bronze star, silver star, campaign ribbons all over his chest. This man was not a desk jockey. He was an infantry general who had risen through the ranks. He was a warrior. But he was a leper. Now, nowadays, we call that burying the lead, okay? <laughs> we, tell, we find out all of this interesting stuff about Naaman. And oh, by the way, he has a progressive, debilitating, incurable disease. So all of his accomplishments, all of his exploits, pale in comparison to the fact that he is doomed to die. Now we meet a little girl. And we're going to spend some time here because this is a story about Naaman, but this isn't. Really, so much about Naaman as about what God did for Naaman. And in verse 2, we're told that the Arameans had gone out in bands. Companies is what the King James Version says. And this is a Hebrew word that is used in conjunction with organized military efforts. A band or a company had a chain of command, it had a mission, it had control, it was part of an organized military group. And during the course of the ongoing conflict between Israel and Aram, these bands would go out. And it says that they had taken captive a little girl. Now, that is a female somewhere between infancy and adolescence. We can infer from the context here that she's probably closer to the adolescence side of that time span than the infancy side. But somehow, some band of soldiers, some Rangers, if you will, a small force, not in open battle, but in enemy territory, they come upon this little girl, and she is a threat. She's old enough, obviously, to see that these are not her kinsmen, they are not her tribesmen, they are not even her countrymen, these are foreign soldiers, and in that instant, she becomes a threat to them, to their team, to their mission, and what do you do with a military threat? You neutralize it. Now, they can make dead certain that this little girl never has the chance to tell anyone what she's come upon, but You can't leave a little girl dead with war wounds for somebody to find. So if you neutralize the threat with extreme prejudice, then you've got to take time to bury the body, and that can compromise the mission. But she's a girl. She's young enough, small enough. She can't overpower them. She can't outrun them. And so to keep the mission on schedule and neutralize the threat, you capture her. You take her with you. You preserve your military purpose. You can do your duty. You can complete your mission. Now, she doesn't have her own phone with Find My Friends on it so her parents can keep track of where she is. She just disappears. And as she loses sight of the last familiar landmark that she knows, she might as well be on another continent. She doesn't have a map and a compass. She doesn't have a smartwatch that will let her navigate back to start. She's gone. It reminds me of someone, yes, who left unwillingly as a captive, and the last thing he sees after his brothers sell him into slavery is the land that he has no reason to think he will ever see again. Now, where did Joseph end up? In Potiphar's house. Where does this little girl end up? She's waiting on Naaman's wife. Interesting parallel, isn't it? And this little girl says to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. She cares about him. She doesn't sit off in a corner and say nothing and think to herself, I'm so glad I know the truth. I'm so glad that I'm not worshipping like these pagans. And she doesn't go off and mutter under her breath, it serves him right. He's the general that sent those men that captured me. He deserves to be a leper. She cares about Naaman. Now, she knows about the prophet in Samaria. Is she following the prophet's Twitter account? No. Is she going in to watch Good Morning Samaria on the satellite feed when Naaman's wife is outside of the media room? No. She learned from her parents to respect the prophet and the God who sends prophets. And who else learned from his father about God? third parallel between this little unnamed girl and Joseph. Jesus said in Matthew 5, chapter 43, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That little girl wasn't listening to Jesus when he spoke those words, but she had learned the same principle. Cynics might say she had Stockholm Syndrome, that because she'd been captured and was held hostage, she was sympathizing with her captors. I don't believe that. I think this little girl had been so well-trained by her parents that she was able to care for and offer hope to the commanding general of the army that had taken her away from everything that she knew. Obviously, she said this to Naaman's wife. Naaman's wife tells Naaman, Naaman goes to the king of Aram. And he said, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. Well, we already know that the king respects Naaman. Naaman is the king's literal right hand man. And he says, This is wonderful. I'll write a royal letter, I will dispatch it with you. You go to Israel. And see if you can have this disease cured. And obviously, since Naaman's health is worth more to him than any amount of money, he takes a very good, very large sum of precious metals, clothing, as a gift to whoever can cure him of this incurable disease. Naaman comes to Samaria. He brings the letter to the king of Israel. And here it is. I have sent you Naaman my servant so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now the king of Israel is also a warrior, at least a warrior of sorts. He's a descendant of Ahab. Ahab died in battle. There is a great tradition of warrior kings of Israel going all the way back to Saul, David. So not only is he a warrior, but he's also king, which is a pretty important position. And, you know, I'm sure he likes the job, I'm sure there are perks. But what does he say about all this? Am I? I, God, (laughs) I'm supposed to cure this guy? This king, this royal personage is sending a direct communication, royalty to royalty, to me, and I'm supposed to cure this guy? This is going to be an international incident. We could actually end up with a real war here. You notice he doesn't even call Naaman by name, even though the letter tells him Naaman's name. It's, what am I going to do about this? This is going to look bad. We're going to have an international incident. There are going to be repercussions. The diplomatic community is going to go crazy. This is not good. Well, you know, if you're king, it's all about you, I guess. But Elisha is a man of God. He's a prophet. He was mentored by Elijah who was taken to heaven in a chariot. And the last thing that Elisha asked of his mentor was a double portion of your spirit. Elisha is God's prophet. He expounds and demonstrates the will of God to the people around him. That's what prophets do. So Elisha hears about the king having ripped his clothes and basically having a temper tantrum over the situation. And Elisha says, why have you torn your clothes? Send him to me. And he'll find out that there is a prophet in Israel. So here comes Naaman with the horses and the chariots. This is a military convoy because this is the commanding general. They get to the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sends a messenger. And the messenger says, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean." Well, Naaman loses it. There's no other way to describe it. He was furious. Who does this guy think he is? Who does this guy think I am? Where is the honor guard? Where is the military band? Where is the reviewing stand? Where is the oratory? Where is the rhetoric? Why isn't he standing at attention when I arrive? Why isn't he out here invoking his God and waving his hand over my leprosy? What is this? He sends some trainee out with instructions written on a post-it note? I'm out of here. There are two rivers in Damascus. Both of them cleaner than that muddy creek they call the Jordan. If I want to wash in something, I want it to be cleaner than the dirt I have on me from this journey. Move out! He gives the command, the convoy heads out, and he's off in a rage. Warriors have big egos too, you know. But now we come back to the servants. Servants don't have big egos. They have big hearts. And as they are making for the border with all deliberate speed, Naaman's servants come to him and they say, My father? And by the way, that's the Hebrew root from the Aramaic that Paul uses when he says we cry, Abba, Father, It's a term of respectful endearment. It's like saying, Daddy, think about this. If that prophet had told you to do something really difficult, something that really tested you, you would have risen to that challenge. All he said was, Go wash and be clean. And so Naaman Heads down to the river and dips himself seven times. Why seven? God likes the number seven. He created the world in seven days. We have messages to the seven churches, we have the seven trumpets. God likes the completeness symbolized in the number seven. Not once, not twice. Not just a few times, but seven times. Naaman follows the instructions, and he comes out of the water physically healed. Now he goes back to Elisha. And he's the one that stands before Elisha now. And he says, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So let me offer you what I brought. Let me give you something for what you've done for me. Elisha says, absolutely not. As the Lord lives, I will take nothing. And Naaman thinks, okay, We're negotiating here, he's being modest, that's fine. I'll offer again. And Elisha refuses again. And now that Naaman is physically healed, he's also being spiritually healed. And I like to think that this is the moment in Naaman's life when he grasps the concept of grace. He can't buy what's been done, It's a gift. And so he asks for two loads of dirt. Two mules load of earth. So that he can take this back. And have a little bit of the soil of the country of the God who has healed him. Where he will worship and offer sacrifices. And then he asks for pardon. He says, I'm still the commanding general. I'm still the king's literal right-hand man. I can't convert the king immediately. And when he goes into the temple of our national god to worship, I'm going to be taking him in. I'm going to be escorting him. It's my job. But when he leans on my hand and we both bow down, I will be performing an act of service to the king. I will not be performing an act of worship because I am not going to worship another god anymore. And Elisha says to him, Go in peace. We have a healing God. As we talked about last week when Pastor Mike was teaching us, physical disabilities are repeatedly used in Scripture as a metaphor for the universal incurable spiritual disability that results from our sinfulness. Sin is a plague. It has an attack rate, an infectivity of 100%. If you're a geneticist, it is a dominant trait with 100% penetrance. We cannot escape it. It is incurable. We are under a sentence of eternal death because of our sinfulness that fact pales in comparison to any physical disability that we may have. And so as Jesus said in the scripture when he was talking to the congregation in Nazareth, Nazareth, not all those with physical disabilities are healed, at least not in this present life and not by divine intervention. That, I believe, is in part because our spiritual disability is so much more significant. And if you think about it, it may take greater faith to claim spiritual healing in spite of a physical disability than to claim spiritual healing when your physical disability has been removed. But that doesn't mean that physical disabilities cannot or will not be removed. Because when physical healings are performed by God, we often see that these lead directly to a spiritual healing for the same sufferer. And I believe that that is what occurred with Naaman. God used his physical healing to give him Spiritual healing. And remember, the promise of spiritual healing is as certain and as universal as is our need for it. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's the promise of Jesus himself. So what do we learn from Naaman's story? Or actually, the little girl's story. Because without her, there would have been no healing. We would not know who Naaman was. Individuals with big egos can be particularly resistant to even God's efforts to accomplish their healing. If you need any proof of that, think about who had the most important job in heaven. And because he thought too highly of himself, has brought what we now experience to this entire planet. God's healing efforts often extend far beyond whatever preconceptions we may have as to who may or may not be worthy of his healing. God works. He works with big egos. He works with warriors. He works with everyone. But when God works, he works through servants. That's why we sang more about service than warfare this morning. That's what we need to remember. Let's ask God to help us to do that. Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the way we can see how you lead through amazing circumstances and show us over and over again how much you love us, how much you desire to save us, and how much you desire for us to allow you to use us to help draw others to you. May we do that as we leave this place.